Last week, as we um, really kind of coming up right on the end of uh, our study in Revelation, we read through the section on chapter 21, verse 9, uh, through chapter 22, verse 5, which is uh, Lesson 12, the New Jerusalem. Uh, I'm Because of the way I basically had to read through and not stop from beginning to end because of time considerations and there, there wasn't time for any questions or feedback or anything at all. I'm going to take a few minutes to kind of go through that just to touch on it one more time and uh, make sure we're, uh, we're all kind of in the same place on that. And then we'll, uh, we're actually very close to, the, uh, uh, very close to uh, finishing up. So uh, a reminder, as we come to the end of the book, we, we've talked about this over the last few weeks, starting... Uh, in the little section just prior to this, uh, where the third vision ends, and John talks about a new heaven and new earth, we've been seeing how language of the end time, the coming of Jesus, the new heaven and new earth, the res- all of the kind of talk that we read in uh, places like in Peter's letters or in 1 Corinthians 15 or in the teachings of Jesus about his return, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, that day of the Lord that will come when Jesus will return, the dead will be raised, there will be judgment, new heaven and new earth. That that language is taken by God and used in the, in the writings of the prophets to talk about God's judgment and working, both to judge nations and to bless his people in time. And so when we come to the end of Revelation, where God, is, as we've been watching this conflict throughout this book between the first century nemesis of the church, her Babylon, which is the Roman Empire, uh, we've seen how God has promised to bring judgment and uh, punishment and destruction to that empire and uh, essentially bring that world, the world of, of the oppressor of the church, to an end. And in so doing, the church will find herself in a completely new environment or situation. The book then moves on to describe this holy city, New Jerusalem. And this is the final, the fourth vision in the book. And... Um, I just, uh, so often when we come to this point in the book, our, our thinking, I would, let me just say, my thinking for many, many years had been conditioned to now project this to the end of time and, beginning, and to begin to think in more literal terms. But I'd remind us that we're still in an apocalypse. We're still in apocalyptic literature. We're still reading the words of a vision. And let me just kind of say this, that Images and visions are not literal. Images in these visions are not literal. But the images in these visions do reveal spiritual realities. These images are tied to things that are spiritually true and real. But the images themselves are not literal. For example, not just in the apocalypse here, but in other places... There's a sense in which the church is not literally the bride of Jesus. What I mean by that is, the church isn't a woman in a white dress. That's not what the church is. But the church is the bride of Christ is a spiritual reality. The church is the bride of Christ is God's way of saying, we we are in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. We are connected with Him in in a covenant just like that, a covenant of marriage, a covenant of fidelity. And we, we experience those spiritual realities. There's a difference between 
an image being literal and an image and an image reflecting spiritual truth. And we see that especially in the section that we're reviewing tonight in verses um, uh, 9 of chapter 21 through uh, verse 5 of chapter 22, where we read uh, at the outset of the angel telling John here at the climax of the book, and we're, we'll read through this section one more time, but just kind of move through it quickly. Chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away into the, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. John is told by this angel that he is going to view the bride and then he is shown the city. We talked about this last week. There is an equating, uh, a correlation, and uh, an identification between these two images. The church is the bride of Christ. And in this sense, in this vision of John, the church is also a holy city. It is the new Jerusalem. And so as we read about this city that, we're, that follows and all of the images that follow in this next section... We're reading things that are true about the people of God, about God's relationship with his people. And we're not reading about a place. Uh, In Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem is not a place. It's not in a, you're not, we don't travel there and arrive at it. It is a description, an image of the people of God and God in relationship with his people. And that's, that's brought out at the very beginning by John being told that he's going to be shown the bride, which we understand very clearly is a reference to the church. And then rather than seeing some woman, rather than seeing a bride, what does he see? He sees a city. Think back for just a moment about the power of evil in the book of Revelation. Is there a woman associated with evil in the book of Revelation? Yeah, the great prostitute who rides on the back of the beast. Is there an evil city associated with the empire, with, with the enemy? In, in, it's, you know, in, in cryptic language, it's Babylon. You have Babylon and you have a great prostitute. And now what we find at the end of the book, we find a woman who is also a city. Remember back in chapters 17, 18, and 19, the woman is identified with the city. The woman who rides on the back of the beast, the great prostitute, is identified with the city. And the same thing is true here. The woman, the bride of the Lamb, is identified with the city, the New Jerusalem. They are images for the same spiritual reality. And uh, I've written a few of the things up here. I made a list, and I... And it would take me, honestly, it would take me two whiteboards and four columns to write down everything in this little section that describes something about the nature of the church. Um, and so I just wrote some of, the, some of the main ones that we've talked about before. So, first of all, it's just kind of starting with that concept that uh, in this passage we're, we're looking at this city, this new Jerusalem, as the people of God in fellowship with him, not as a geographical place, um, so that when we read the description of the city, we're, not, uh, we're being told something that is spiritually true about God's people 
and about our relationship with God, but not, but not reading about a literal city, because the city and the bride uh, are one. Is that... I'm not asking for agreement like I, I typically don't. Is that, is, that at least, is that at least clear, that we're saying the city and the bride... Go like this or go like this. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much. There were at least four people who said this. So that's, that's a quorum in my, uh, that's enough. That's a majority here. So uh, we'll go with it. And, and so as we read through this description, I'm just going to read through it. And if you have a question or a comment or, a, uh, and, and, and certainly if you have a different, something different to share, you feel free to do, uh, to do so. Uh, John is taken up to a high mountain. We mentioned last time this is just out of Ezekiel 40, where Ezekiel is taken up to a high mountain, and what has he shown? He's shown Jerusalem, a, new, a renewed Jerusalem, and John has a very similar experience here. And, and now we read about this city. In verse, uh, verse 11, it has the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So this city reflects the glory of God, and God himself, the glory of God is described as that of a jasper stone back in chapter 4, and now the city reflects that same glory. God's people reflecting the glory of the God who lives within them. The twelve gates, uh, the twelve foundations, we spent some time talking about this last week. Um, the twelve gates inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve foundation stones being the twelve apostles, the, the foundation of, of the church or uh, of God's people. And again, we have these images. With, with, uh, you'll notice, we, again, I'll point this out, but we've talked about it a bunch. Look, just look at the numbers. Twelve, twelve, twelve thousand, twelve kinds of, of precious jewels. Twelve kinds of fruit. Now, number twelve, and as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, the number twelve is associated with the people of God. And here, this city, everything about it has twelve or its multiples uh, written on it to identify this uh, as God's people. And so you have the gates, you have the the foundation stones. Uh, Anything about that? Anything up to... Any comments or thoughts, questions, or anything at all about the foundation and the gates as just a way of saying the people of God are built on, on the teachings of the apostles. And the entrance into the city is, is coming in through the, through the sons of Israel, through the people of God, through it's just a, a way of kind of tying this city uh, into images that relate to the, God's, God's people. Okay. In verses 15 to 17, the city is measured. We talked so much about measuring. Uh, we see it in Ezekiel where to measure something. We've seen it already in, in Revelation chapter uh, is it 11 where the city, to measure something means that it belongs to God, that it's protected, that it's holy. And here the city is measured once more. 
The one who spoke of me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurements, which is also an angel's measurement. So we have the city... And what we, as we noted last time, what's unusual about this city is it is a cube. This isn't just a flat piece of territory. This city is described by its length, its width, and its height, which are equal, which happen to be 12 times 1,000 in length. And the cube, as we see throughout in the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the one place that stands out as a, as a perfect cube in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies, both in the tabernacle and the temple. So this city is a Holy of Holies. It is the Holy of Holies. It is the temple of the living God where God dwells, which, of course, is what the church is referred to in the New Testament, the temple of the living God, where God abides by his spirit. So we have this, this cube uh, with walls, again, that are 144 cubits thick, 12 times 12. Uh, again, just pointing to the, uh, to the connection between the image and the spiritual reality uh, of the people of God. Uh, anything about the dimensions coming down to, to that? Questions, thoughts? Okay, here we go. Let's take a look, we'll read through verses 18 21 and read about kind of the precious nature of the city. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. I probably won't get some of these right, but here we go. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. The whole city is gold, um, the streets are gold, the foundations are decorated with precious jewels, and again, the significance of the, uh, of the preciousness of the building materials is to speak of the holiness and the glory of God's people. And uh, it is, of course, there are 12 stones, uh, 12 precious stones that adorn the city. And then we have um, the presence of God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, we have the, the statement that there's no need for there being 
a temple there because it is the, God is there making this very city his temple. There's no need for the sun because God is the light. The lamb is the lamp. Uh, and these, again, are images out of Isaiah 60 where the same thing is said about a renewed Jerusalem. And then something that I think really helps place this vision of the church in time rather than after the end of time is that we're told that the nations are going to walk by its light. And if time is no more, if we have moved into eternity, there's, the church no longer functions as the source of light for a world that's still in darkness, to be that city on a hill, to reflect the light of God. We're told in this image that the nations will walk by its light, that the, um, the kings of the earth and the nations will bring their glory into it. Which says to me, uh, and it says specifically, the gates are open. You can come into this city, and in fact, in just a few moments, people are going to be invited to come in to the city. People who are not in the city presently will be invited to come in and drink water from the, from the river of life. And so we see here the church kind of as the hope of the world. The church is the light. It's, it's the city on a hill. The, the church is, is the place where people will come. And, uh, and as the nations come in, you have kind of the idea of the vindication of God's people. But there's so many images. I mean, going all the way back to Isaiah 2 and the nations flowing into Zion. Uh, when the law goes forth from Zion. You have a lot of these kinds of images in the Bible where people come into the city of God. The nations come to the city of God, which shows God's people being the beacon to the world and calling, uh, calling the world to him. Uh, there's nothing impure in this city. This, this is the people of God dwelling in relationship with God, and uh, nothing impure can be found in it. Anything about the about that aspect of the description. Yes. <laughs> Sorry for the smile, but my uh, Ellen is asking uh, if this is talking about the church in general, the church after the fall of Rome. And the reason we're both kind of smiling is because we spent about two hours talking about this recently. So, uh, and, but we've been talking about this. And it's a, it's a very good question. Um, I think you can, I think there's a, a couple of ways of looking at it. In the, in the way that the book has unfolded, in the way that the story of Revelation has unfolded, um, if we think of it as a story unfolding over time and Rome coming under judgment and, and then one day being destroyed... I think in, in that sense, you can, uh, you can see this kind of as the church triumphant. The church in her glory and in her triumph after the fall of her enemies. I think that's a fair way of looking at the chapter. At the same time, um, it's my thought that what's being said here about the church uh, is essentially true about the church. Um, uh, in the book, this comes at the end to set the church apart because before, the church was a city being trampled underfoot. Back in chapter 11, I believe, the church is the holy city being trampled by the nations for 42 months. 
And now at the end, we see this triumphant, glorious church. So I think in the scope of the book, uh, when you come to the end, it is kind of in contrast. This is the triumphant church. This is what the triumphant city of God looks like in contrast to the holy city that's been trampled by the nations while she's been persecuted. So I think you do have that contrast in the book. I, I think at the same time, though, though that contrast is there, I think there's a sense in which the church is always the city on the hill. The church is always the light of the world. Now, in terms of the story of Revelation and the persecution, the church ends up being trampled and so forth, and so it has a different image in the, in the story. But... Um, I think the nature of God's relationship with his people is to dwell with his people, that his people reflect that light to the world, that the world comes to God through his people. So there's a sense in which I think it is generally true about the church. And I'm saying basically both. But uh, which I know it would be uh, less confusing if I would say one or the other. But I do think it in, in terms of the book, there's a contrast with how the city is described earlier being trampled, and the city you have at the end being triumphant and glorious. Uh, I think, though, how I just would say that even when the church is being persecuted, she is still the light of the world. If you, see, you see what I mean there? I mean, we're still the light of the world. We're still the hope of the nations, even if we're living through a time of persecution. But in the images, there, there's a contrast. I hope that answers to... <laughs> <laughs> well, she's honest, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, someone help me out with that. <laughs> I'm having a little trouble getting that. Um, nobody's going to help me out on that. Um, okay. All righty. Should I take one more run at it or just move along? <laughs> just move along? Okay. All righty. I do appreciate questions. I know sometimes when it's Ellen and I, we kind of chuckle back and forth, but I really do. Uh, as I was saying to Ellen today, um, when something isn't being communicated, it's not your fault. <laughs> it's not a class's fault if, if information isn't being communicated. It's the teachers. It's, it's my responsibility to find a way. And so that's why I do like questions because it lets me know maybe something isn't clear. I need to try another, another angle. So please, uh, please do that. Uh, the end of this vision comes in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing, down, or flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And we have this... Garden of Eden scene, which is also, as we've mentioned before, out of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 47, where Ezekiel sees the river coming out of the new temple, this river flowing out and becoming a sea, and the, tr the trees on either side, and life along this river. And that same kind of image is used to here, 
uh, is used here in, uh, to talk about a river of life that flows from the throne of God. Sounds like a song. River that flows, the river of life that flows from the throne of God. Of course, the imagery comes right from, from here and also from Ezekiel 47. The tree of life, I mean, all the way back to Genesis, the tree of life is on either side of this river, and the trees bear fruit each month, 12 kinds of fruit. Again, just the proliferation of the number 12, um, which is a, a continual. Uh, tying back in to the people of God and this is the source of their life the tree of life the river uh, of the water of life and notice again the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations the tree inside the city the trees that grow alongside the river of the water of life have healing properties for the nations for those outside the city and I, to me, this is just an image that says this world that... Because in the vision of the city, outside the city is dark. The city is the source of light. The city has the river of water of life. The city has the tree of life. The city has uh, the leaves that bring healing. And this, this city is open. And, and the nations can come in and find healing and can find life. And that not that really what the church is the, the, the church is the city with open gates and doors uh, inviting people to come in and see the glory of God and to find healing to find life and uh, I think that the imagery here is uh, is really beautiful and uh, it's just it's it's a reminder of 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 who we are in, in, the, in the book of Revelation when it's first being written we realize that the church has been persecuted persecuting is about to get worse the church is going to be described as we, uh, in the book as we mentioned a moment ago as a city under siege being trampled and in this final image we see this church triumphant over her enemies uh, showing her to be the splendor and the hope of the world and all of this all of this imagery is tied in to spiritual realities of the end. Because we know when the end comes, when Jesus returns, that the things that are spoken of here through imagery and symbols that are representing spiritual truths will, will, will one day literally occur. There will be the return of our Lord. There will be a new heaven and new earth. There will be an environment where there is no crying, pain, sorrow. There will be the total victory of the church, the total vindication of God's people, and the reward of those that have been faithful to Him. The things that we're reading about here in this beautiful imagery, as so much of the imagery that we find not only here but in the prophets, they're pointing to a reality that one day will occur in its fullness. Because we're living in a time... Um, where these things are true to an extent for us by faith. Um, is the church reigning today? Is the church reigning today with Christ? If you think back to our last year's study in the book of Ephesians about being lifted up and seated in the heavenly realms with Christ... The church is reigning today 
Now, but we look at the world, we look at the, the way things are, and we realize that we have stepped into a new spiritual reality that is yet to be consummated and made full and complete at the return of Jesus. I mean, we have begun to experience eternal life, but we don't experience in its fullness. We have come into fellowship with God. For you and I, the curse of sin has been removed by the blood of Christ. So the curse is gone. Uh, And yet, we live in a world that still suffers under sin and death. And we await the ultimate reality when those things will be completely done away with. But there is a sense in which now, now but not yet, already but not yet, already we enjoy the blessings of the new age. We live in the kingdom of heaven. We live in the kingdom of God. But it isn't fully known. Even, even as, in a sense, the reign of Christ isn't fully... Does Christ reign today? Of course. But Satan still is active on this world. But we know there will come a day when the reign of Christ will be absolute and Satan and everything that he does will be destroyed. And I think the images that we're reading here at the end of Revelation uh, we, uh, can be thought of in that way. That these are telling us things that are spiritually true about the church, but that one day will be enjoyed in a full sense, and in a complete sense, when, when the present order is taken away and the new order is, is brought in. Questions, thoughts? Um, please, just... Uh, yes, Mylon? I think you're probably right on that last part. And, and I know and there's a sensitivity. I mean, I have a, there's a sensitivity and, uh, to that very, to that very uh, matter. Believe you me, it's not lost on me. Because our, uh, the images that we use to talk about heaven uh, are taken largely from these chapters. And um, and uh, so I guess all, I guess uh, I, realizing that uh, the way I view it and the reason that it doesn't shatter because I know I know what you're believe you me I've been there I know just what you're talking about the reason it doesn't kind of shatter my world is because it uh, what strikes me is that. Something is being written in about in a way that I can understand the images, but as you say, the reality, the reality of living in the presence with God is a whole, is just going to be, I mean, these are, these are just images that call to mind the preciousness of the fellowship, the presence of God, the absence of sin. And I think uh, every, and that's why I said at the beginning, the images are not literal, but they're spiritually true. All of these things are spirit, they're representing something about the nature of our fellowship with God and the beauty of that fellowship. I, that we're still in the world of vision. That we're still in, a, in the vision of John. And, and honestly, um, I've talked with several people here about, uh, about this and 
about it taking me a little time to be fully convinced myself of that over, over a period of time. And so please feel free to think as you will, to look at it as you will, to study it and to, to come to your conclusions. Um, uh, but I do, I definitely understand where you're coming from and because I can, um, I've dealt with that same kind of transition or that kind of like, it, it's, at first it's kind of like, wait a minute, it's like you've just, that, if that's true. And, and so, the, but, but the imagery uh, is so rich and uh, I think um, I think the beauty of it and the assurance of it is still every bit as rich in, in seeing it as a description of the fellowship that God has with this church rather than a literal place. Um, but that's uh, anybody else have a thought on that or anything else? Because I do, I mean, under, I definitely understand where Mylon's coming from on that. Yes. Well, there'll be a new there'll be a new order. Yeah, when the present world order is done, like in Peter, there will be a new heaven and new earth. I mean, there will one day that will happen. Yes. I'm not saying that. No, I'm not saying that. I, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that in this section, the city that we're reading about isn't a city. It is a people in relationship with God. This city is a temple. This, this city is a holy of holies with all of this imagery packed in from the Garden of Eden to, I mean, it's got everything to say, here is God dwelling with His people, blessing them, calling the world to light and life and salvation. And that, it's a, that it is a, an image of God in relationship, of God living within His people. Uh, in a sense, this, this city is a temple. And, uh, and the imagery here is describing a relationship between God and His people. It isn't, it, it isn't, a, it isn't, uh, it isn't a place. It isn't a geographical location or a place, a literal place. But it is, a, it is literally, I mean, it is spiritually true in, in that it's describing the relationship that God has with His people. Um, for, I mean, to take this out of the realm of apocalyptic for just a minute, when Jesus says, you know, you're a city set on a hill. Okay, well, we're not literally a city set on a hill. But there's something about being a city on a hill that he's, he's teaching us some truth about that. Uh, and, I, and I know that's, a, that's not apocalyptic. That's just a different kind of imagery. But in this, in this realm, uh, essentially, I think we are the city... This is the, if you want to talk about a city on a hill, I mean, that this, this massive cube of light and gold and river of life and tree of life, uh, it's saying something very true and real about the church and about God's relationship with his church. So that it, it, is, spiritually, it is spiritually true, it's just not literal. That would be how I would put it. It's not literally a city with streets of gold, 
but it but it's describing a spiritual reality of a precious fellowship between God and His people, where His people reflect His glory and light in, in complete fellowship with Him and serve Him and worship Him, and the gates are open for people to come in, and the nations can come in and find healing. And, and it's, in that sense, a description of the church with God in her, creating the church as His temple. Because you, you see all the imagery here? John, he, I'm going to show you the bride, but then he shows him a city, and the city is a cube, like a temple. I mean, you have all of these images just packed on top of each other that, that are all pointing, I think, to, to the people of God, rather than to a location. And uh, please take time to, to think that over and to... Uh, um, you truly come to your own conclusions on that. Um, I just, in a practical sense, I think when we think about heaven, to read these chapters and to read this, to read these images, is uh, I th- I think that uh, I think that's a legitimate thing to do, because I think the, this imagery. Uh, though it's symbolic, it is speaking about something that's spiritually true and that one day will be fully realized. Whatever, whatever the new creation looks like, and I don't pretend to know, but whatever the new creation looks like, whatever kind of substance or shape it might have, the things that are said here about God dwelling with his people those things are going to be fully realized in the, in the fullest sense possible. Uh, in, because the, the reason these images have meaning is because they're rooted in the reality of what one day will be at the end. I, I, hope, that, I hope that makes... Um, if we would never, if we're never going to see God, if we're never going to be face to face with Him, if we're never going to live without mourning or crying and pain, then all of this imagery, honestly, it's just absolutely worthless and has no meaning whatsoever. It's just a bunch of words. The reason these images are powerful is because they do reflect a reality, a spiritual reality that will one day fully be realized when Jesus returns. And everything that's said here about the relationship between God and His people will be fully known. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what that place is going to look like. Any more than I know exactly what our bodies will look like or what that new realm will look like. But everything that's said here that has spiritual truth, all of that is is part of the ultimate reality. And, um, and the Im- because we find this imagery used all the way back in the Old Testament prophets because it's rooted in this final reality of where God's taking creation and where he's taking his people. And we'll stop with that. If you have other questions, and uh, we'll, um, we can take them next week. I think we'll f- hold on to your hats if you have one. Uh, nobody has a hat, but anyway... Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, next week we will complete class. We do have a hat. Hold on to it, Donnie. <laughs> Thanks. Somebody was pointing when I said nobody had a hat. Um, we'll uh, 
the uh, read the, the the last. You have the last notes, and we're at the last little kind of just the epilogue here. Read through that, and Lord willing, we will uh, complete our study next week. There is kind of a summary page. You remember uh, several weeks ago, several months ago. Let's be honest. I gave you a blank chart that had images out of Revelation, and we were filling in the blanks. I couldn't find mine. I, uh, I lost mine, and so. I thought it might be nice to redo it, and I put in, I filled it all in. So you can, uh, you can grab one of those in the back and stick it in your notebook if you'd like. And thank you so much. I, I know sometimes it's going to be really, um, um, it, it takes effort and concentration and thought and, uh, and focus, and I appreciate, I appreciate everybody here and your, your willingness to go through this together. Let, let's pray as we close. Father, it's always good to come together to open your word. And, Father, let me be the first to confess my inability to fully understand. I know, Father, my understanding is so far from perfect. Um, But thank you for being with us as we do our best um, to take a look at this amazing book of prophecy from a particular viewpoint. And, Father... Help us to recognize that what's being said here in these final chapters is phenomenal. Um, To know even now that we live in fellowship with you, that we are your holy temple, that the Holy Spirit lives within us, that you have already dealt with sin and death, but we know, Father, one day um, that will be done completely at the return of Jesus. And we, we can only imagine what that new realm will be. And Father, we know that what we're reading in Revelation points us to its beauty, to its majesty, to the pure fellowship, to the worship around your throne, to being in your very presence, Father. All of these things that are said in image, they are reflecting spiritual truths and realities that we experience in part now and one day will fully know by your grace and the return of Christ. And, Father, we long for that day. Uh, We're grateful for the fellowship and the life that we have now, but how we long for the day when we fully come into your presence and sin and death have been dealt with once and for all. What a gracious, loving God you are, Father. Help us to be faithful witnesses as your church long ago. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.